Man, if you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 15, we'll be continuing in John's Gospel this morning. If you remember last week, we began this great chapter of God's Word, John chapter 15, where we've been in this upper room discourse for the last several chapters, and we've been looking at our Lord's final words to His disciples before His coming departure from this earth. Not only in His coming death upon the cross, but in His coming ascension, where He will ascend to the right hand of the Father and ever live to make intercession for His people. And we've seen He's been preparing His disciples for this departure. He's been preparing them for what is to come. And we saw last week in John chapter 14 these great promises of our Savior for His people, that He will not leave them as orphans. He will indeed come to them. Him and the Father will make their home with Him. They will dwell with His people. The Spirit will indeed teach them all things, and He promises them His perfect and abiding peace. And so we saw these great promises declared in John chapter 14. But last week we looked at This great passage where Jesus declares that He is the true vine. He is the pleasant vineyard planted by the Lord that will indeed bear fruit. Where Adam failed to do this, where Israel failed to do this, our Lord will succeed and He will indeed bear much fruit. Fruit. And our, last week we looked at this metaphor that Jesus uses of vine and vine dresser and branches and fruit to describe the nature of what it is to be united to Him in saving faith, to be vitally connected to Him as the true vine. And He used this metaphor to show that all those that are united to Christ by faith will indeed bear fruit. That because of their vital connection to Christ by faith, this saving union they have with Him, believers in Him will indeed bear much fruit because they are connected to Him. And so we saw these great promises of the gospel, this great promises declared of the covenant of grace that God will indeed do this work to all His people that are united to Christ, the true vine. But what we're going to see today is that these promises of the gospel, these promises of what Christ is doing and has done and will do, they indeed have implications for the Christian life. These promises of the gospel indeed have implications for the Christian life, that far from the gospel nullifying the obedience of believers to Christ, we'll see this morning that the gospel far from nullifying obedience, actually strengthens and empowers our keeping of Christ's commands. And that what we're going to see today as we look at our passage is we're going to see the absolute necessity of abiding in Christ. The absolute necessity of abiding in Christ. Not only abiding in Him and in His Word as a means of communion with Him and the heart of true Christian prayer, But we're going to see the importance of abiding in His love as the assurance and comfort that the believer has as they seek to obey the commands of Christ and walk in all that He has commanded. 
And we'll finally see the importance of abiding in his joy as our unshakable hope and unfading glory. So uh, I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word this morning. I'll begin reading at verse 5, but we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he write it upon our hearts. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We thank you for your holy and infallible word. And as we come to it this morning, we see our true nature exposed before you, our sinfulness and our total inability to stand before you of our own merit. And we pray this morning that as we look to your word and as we look to Christ and we see the absolute necessity of abiding in him and being found in him, Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, that we would see the importance of trusting in the gospel this morning, the importance of being united to Christ by faith and by faith alone, and the importance of seeking to walk in Christ and in his commandments as we seek to live this Christian life on our journey to the celestial city. Lord, we need your help this morning, and so we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would illumine your word to us this morning, that you would ride it upon our hearts, and that we would come to rest in Christ this morning. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning. In verses 7 through 8, we're going to see the importance of abiding in Christ's word. In verses 9 through 10, we're going to look at abiding in Christ's love. And then finally, in verse 11, we'll look at abiding in Christ's joy. We see, firstly, the importance of abiding in Christ's word and the importance that that plays on what we say is true Christian prayer, that we see in verse 7 a very important statement by our Lord, a statement on the heart of true prayer. 
a statement on the heart of true prayer. We see our Lord make this connection in verse 7 between abiding in Him and abiding in His Word and the heart of true prayer. He says in verse 7, if anyone, right, sorry, excuse me, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Amazing words of our Lord. Amazing words that he speaks in verse 7. This great promise of our Lord and the promise found for the believer's prayer. And this should remind us of what we saw in John chapter 14. In verse 13, where he says very similar words, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And he says here in verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And the question this morning is, what does this mean? (laughs) What does this mean? We spoke about these things previously, but it's important for us to reiterate, what does it mean when Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done? Can these words of our Lord really be true? We, we talked about previously how this, this previous statement in John 14 was qualified by this statement, in my name, right? To ask in Christ's name is to ask according to his will and not our own. But Jesus says here, ask whatever you wish. Is this sort of a, a blank check of prayer by which we can ask and receive whatever we want? What does this statement of our Lord mean? Well, we see previously in verse 5 that our Lord had just spoken to his disciples about the importance and the absolute necessity of abiding in him, remaining in him by faith, being vitally connected and united to him. And he now turns in verse 7 to the implications of this abiding and the promises that the believer has as they go to the Lord in prayer. And it's so important for us to see that this morning because I think for most Christians, we can kind of see prayer as this mere checking of a box, right? The sign of mindless activity that the Christian goes through. But indeed, that is not what prayer is. Prayer is actually the chief expression of our communion with God and a sign of our utter and total dependence upon Him. When we go to the Lord in prayer, it is not a mindless activity that we're partaking in. Rather, it's saying, I cannot do this on my own. I'm depending on the all-sufficient one. And we are reminded of this in the catechism that says, what is prayer? It is an offering up of our desires unto God. It's a pouring out of our hearts to Him, knowing that He hears us for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That prayer is a chief part of our dependence upon God, our communion with God, and our worship of God, right? This is what prayer is. And this is something that we should be teaching to our children, right? This is something that we should be showing them. Even as we come to church Um, to gather together each and every Sunday, right? We're reminding our kids what we do when we come to church. We're telling them that worship is not about us, that it's about God. (laughs) 
that we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship Him, right? These are things that we should be reminding not only our children of, but ourselves, right? That we come together to sing God's praise, to hear the Word, and to pray. We come together to pray to our great God. And that God's Word is how He speaks to us, and prayer is how we speak and commune to God. And so what's so amazing about these words that our Lord speaks in verse 7 is that what He's saying is that by abiding in Him and abiding in His Word, that this comes with a great promise. That it will indeed have effect upon us as we abide in Christ and as we abide in His Word. It will have an effect on our prayers. And this effect is not magically giving us everything we desire, but rather it is by supernaturally changing our desires and conforming them to His. That as we seek to abide in Christ and abide in His Word, our desires are actually changed and conformed to be His. I love what Augustine said. He said, abiding in Christ governs what you desire. (laughs) Abiding in Christ governs what you desire. It governs our thoughts and our desires, what we pray for, what we ask for. When we are abiding in Christ, we will desire that which is agreeable to Christ and to His will, right? It actually changes our will, (laughs) That as His Word abides in us, as we believe His Word and its promises, as we meditate upon His Word and its truth, as we love His Word and seek to obey it, it changes us. And it changes and conforms our desires to His. And that's why Jesus can say when we pray, we have this amazing promise that whatever we ask for will be done. (laughs) It seems impossible. It seems too good to be true. How can this be possible? But it is only because it is now His will that we are desiring, not our own. Because we are abiding in Him and seeking to abide in His Word. I love what John Gill said about this. He said this passage is not to be understood of earthly and temporary things like honor and riches and pleasure, right? You've heard people say, ask whatever you wish and you'll be given to you, right? Want a new car, you know, treating God as this sort of genie in a bottle. But Gill goes on to say, this is not talking about earthly things, but spiritual and eternal things. Asking for faith, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Asking for wisdom, knowing that God will give it graciously. Asking that we would be sanctified and grow in our knowledge of Christ. These are things that the Lord will give us as we seek to abide in Him. These are things that are aimed at the glory of God. And that's why Jesus can say what He says in verse 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That as God's people are abiding in Christ and abiding in His Word, we will indeed bear fruit. We will indeed do good works, bringing glory to the triune God, and as Jesus says, 
proving to be His disciples, evidencing our faith in Christ, demonstrating that we are true believers, showing the work of God's salvation in us. It's so important that we're reminded of this, that our faithfulness or our fruitfulness is not what makes us disciples. It is faith and faith alone that justifies God's people. It is our fruit, rather, that demonstrates that we are indeed disciples of Christ. Just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He says you will know them by their fruits. And so we see the importance in verses 7 through 8 of abiding in Christ and in His Word and seeking to prove that we are indeed His disciples by bearing much fruit. But that brings us to our second point this morning, abiding in Christ's love. Abiding in Christ's love. That we see in verse 9, one of the most amazing statements, I think, in all of Scripture about the profound love that Christ has for His people. One of the most profound statements in all of Scripture about the profound love that Christ has for His people and the great care that He has for His dear children. He says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. (laughs) This is the extraordinary extent of Christ's love for his people. Not only does Christ declare his love for his own, but he compares it to the love that the Father has for him (laughs) by way of analogy, right? He says, as God the Father has loved his unique and only begotten and beloved Son, so also in a like manner God the Son has loved his unique, elected, and beloved people. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. This is profound. This is extraordinary love that our Lord describes here because we know in and of ourselves we don't deserve this love. I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, what an expression of the condescending grace of Christ. As the Father loved him who was most worthy, he has loved them who are most unworthy, (laughs) right? This is the love that Christ has for his people, that he was the one that was worthy truly of the Father's love, but now because of his work, he can love us who are most unworthy. This, brothers and sisters, is the amazing, sovereign, electing, gracious love of Christ for his people and the great promise that all those that are in Christ have this love, that Christ loves them as his dear children. And that's why he says at the end of verse 9, abide in my love. Abide in my love, calling his people to remain in his love, continue in his love, to believe and rest upon his love for them as an anchor for their very souls, to cherish and value his love as their prized possession. And we see in verse 10 
that our Lord points them to the chief way that His people are to continue in and to abide in this love. And we see that it is in keeping His commandments. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Not because his love is somehow dependent upon our obedience, but because our obedience to Christ's commands demonstrates our abiding in him and his great love for us. That what did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 15? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That as we've already said this morning, far from the gospel nullifying our obedience to Christ and his commands, the gospel in every way strengthens our need to obey our Savior. And then we see at the end of verse 10 that Christ himself is the chief model of what this looks like. And we begin to see the connection between verse 9 and verse 10. One commentator said, just as the Father's love for the Son is the model and standard of Christ's love for us, so too Christ's obedience to the Father is to be the model of our obedience to His commands, right? That we can say that Christ is indeed our example. Now, we say very frequently at this church that Christ is more than an example, right? He's not just an example. He's not just a good moral teacher that shows us how to live, but he is certainly not less than our example. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly kept the commands of the Father. And so we too should follow in Christ's footsteps and seek to obey His commands, and indeed abide in His love. And we see the importance of abiding in His love as a means of resting, as a means of resting in the great love that He has for us. We don't have to try to earn His love. We don't have to try to earn His favor. No, it is because of His great love for us that we have rest for our souls. And because we have that rest... We can now seek to keep his commands and walk in obedience to his word. As we sang this morning, a hold that he has on us that sets us free. But we see thirdly and finally that these things actually lead to our greatest joy in the Christian life and in salvation. And we see that in our third point this morning, abiding in Christ's joy. Abiding in Christ's joy that I love this passage is just riddled with all these great words, right? Abiding and bearing fruit seven times in this passage, or we see this, this idea of bearing fruit, and ten times we see this idea of abiding in Christ. And we see, thirdly, this importance of abiding in Christ's joy. He says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. I'm speaking for this reason, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That our Lord here desires that His people experience His joy. Our Lord desires that His people experience this joy, this joy that can only come from Him. 
and salvation that's found in him. And it says in verse 11 that he wants them to experience it in the full. (laughs) That Jesus wants his people to experience his joy. Christ wants us to experience his love to the fullest extent. But this joy that our Lord speaks of is only found in salvation in him. It's only found in redemption and in the regeneration by the work of the Spirit that Christ has accomplished. Joy that is only found in the gospel of grace, forgiveness of our sins, cleansing by his blood. That this is a joy that you don't need to clean yourself up for, right? You don't need to try to clean yourself up to try to experience this joy. You don't need a theological degree or a resume of your own righteousness to experience this joy. You need Christ. (laughs) You need to abide in Him. You need His cleansing and His righteousness. Because what's implied in what Jesus is saying is that the world can't give this kind of joy. The world can't give this kind of joy. That apart from Christ, there is indeed no lasting joy. That the world is totally and completely unable to offer true, lasting, and abiding joy. That the joy that the world has to offer is temporary, it's fleeting, and it's momentary, that the peace and pleasure of this world is indeed passing away. And the joy of this world will fail us each and every time. (laughs) We're so prone to seek after the joy that this world has to offer. But Christ says, I've spoken these things so that you might abide in my joy. Because the joy of Christ, the joy of salvation, the joy of a clean conscience before God, the joy of being found in Him will not fail us, brothers and sisters. It will not fail ever. (laughs) Why? Because it's been purchased by Christ. It's eternal. It's unchanging, and it cannot be taken away. And so our Lord calls us this morning to abide in this joy because it's only found in his person and in his work. And so as we walk away from this passage this morning, we need to see, first and foremost, the glory of God's love for us, the greatness of God's love for us. We need to behold the manner of God's love for his people, because we see in this passage the amazing love that God has and the profound joy that comes from being found in Christ and abiding in Him. This sovereign, amazing, gracious love of God for His people. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. <laughs> That if you are indeed in Christ this morning, you are called a child of God, adopted into his family by faith as dear children, loved with a perfect and gracious love that is unchanging. Maybe some of us in this room have not had good earthly fathers, not had fathers that cared for us and loved us as they should, earthly parents that failed us and let us down. But we see that in Christ, 
God himself is called our loving father. He cares for us as his dear children. We are loved by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a love that is unchanging, undiminished, and eternal. Not dependent upon our works, but dependent upon his his gracious and eternal love for us. This is why Jesus can say, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. (laughs) This is the love that God has for his people. And it's so important for us to see this this morning because God's love for us is not like our human love. God's love for us is not like our human love. God's love is not like our love that is here one day and gone the next. Something that comes upon us in a moment, a passion that overtakes us that eventually will fade away. No, brothers and sisters, the love of God is eternal and unchanging and will not pass away because love is not something God possesses. It's who he is. (laughs) We read in 1 John that God is love. It is who he is. love itself. And so what we see in our passage is that this love of God for his people is most chiefly displayed in what Christ has done for us, in coming and dying for his people. It's revealed to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First John says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. We see, brothers and sisters, that it is the gospel of Christ that has displayed the love of God for us, that he sent his only son to take the punishment that our sin deserved. But we see in this passage, and what's so amazing about this love that Christ has for his people and abiding in this love is that it has an effect on God's people. It has an effect on God's people. It does not leave us where we are at. That abiding in the true vine has a real effect on God's people. Abiding in Christ does indeed cause God's people to bear fruit. Because we see the sobering reality of this passage and really the inverse of it is that if we are not abiding in Christ, and not bearing fruit, we are proving to not be his disciples. Right? That's the big question that really comes out of this passage as we're looking at it as a whole. This question of what if there is no fruit? What if there is no fruit to be found? What if the only fruit that we see is bad fruit? What if someone claims to be abiding in Christ 
but is not bearing fruit. And we see in this passage that there are real imperatives for the Christian life. There are real commandments for the believers. That Christ's work by the Spirit has real effects on the people of God. This work of regeneration and sanctification by God's Spirit is real. And there are real warnings for those that profess Christ but do not bear fruit and do not abide in Him and in His Word. And it's clear from our passage and from the rest of the New Testament that someone that is not bearing fruit, that is not abiding in Christ, not practicing righteousness, but practicing and abiding in sin and unrighteousness and unrepentant sin, is proving that they are not disciples of Christ, evidencing and demonstrating that they do not abide in the true vine. Go to places like 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, where John says, No one born of God keeps on sinning. No one abiding in Christ makes a practice of sinning. John here is not advocating for some sort of Christian perfectionism where there's no sin found in a believer, but rather the genuine doctrine of Christian sanctification. That if there is no fruit in one's life, no abiding in prayer, no desire to worship God with his people, no fighting of sin, no joy in God or in the things of God, then John clearly tells us that this is evidence of who is of God and who is not, who is proving to be a disciple of Christ and who is proving that they are not. And this is a sober reality for us this morning, brothers and sisters, a sober warning that we see in this passage because the truth is we have all at times fallen into sin. We have all at times been in our Christian walk have felt like we weren't bearing fruit. Maybe where our communion with Christ was hindered because of our sin, or maybe we were even questioning our salvation, our assurance, am I really saved because of the sin that we continually fall into? But we see, brothers and sisters, that this idea of bearing fruit is vitally important to what we understand about the Christian life, and that's really why what we believe about the local church is so important what we believe about membership in the local church is so important because what the church is called to do in membership is not only identify those who are truly professing the faith and walking with Christ, who are disciples of Christ, affirming their profession of faith, but it's also calling to repentance those who do not know Christ, who are not bearing fruit, and to exhort and discipline those who fall into sin. And so that leads us to our second point of application, which is the importance of abiding in Christ's church, right? We've spoken much this morning about the importance of abiding in Christ, but we see an implication of this passage that to abide in Christ, to seek to abide in Him, is to seek to abide in His body, the church, To not only be a part of the church universal, right, all believers at all times, but to be an active member of a local expression of Christ's church in membership. You might be thinking to yourself, 
what in the world does this have to do with John chapter 15, right? What, why is this important to what we are speaking about and seeing in this illustration of bearing fruit and being united to the vine? Because what's happening in membership in a local church is the church is affirming that someone is indeed abiding in the vine. They are affirming their credible profession of faith that what they are saying is true, that they are abiding in Christ, that they are seeking to bear fruit and put their sin to death, that they are worshiping with God's people and communing with Him. And this is a great help to weak souls because we can go through seasons where it feels like, am I really saved? I am struggling with sin. And we can go to our brothers and sisters and they can help us in these seasons of trial and questioning. But what this also means is that if someone is professing Christ and not demonstrating this fruit, not abiding in Christ, but instead abiding in the world, not practicing righteousness, but instead practicing sin, then as believers and as Christ's church, we are called and even commanded to exhort one another and even sometimes discipline those that are in sin. And this, brothers and sisters, is actually the grace and mercy of God. This is the grace and mercy of God. Because as we saw in our passage, Christ wants us to abide in His joy. He wants us to abide in His love. He wants us to glorify the Father and abide in Him. And the way we do this is by abiding in the true vine, seeking to bear fruit and glorify Him by keeping His commandments. Because we are not God, (laughs) right? We cannot see infallibly into the souls of people. We cannot see the matters of the heart infallibly. (laughs) Funny way to put it is, we don't have regeneration goggles, right? We can't see whose heart has been changed from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Who is truly in the vine? But what we can see And what the New Testament calls us to look to is the fruit, right? Is the fruit of someone's life. And so the call this morning, first to us as individuals, is to examine ourselves. Is to examine ourselves. Ask ourselves the difficult questions. Am I bearing fruit in my Christian walk? Or is my life marked by a practice of unrepentant sin? Am I seeking to abide in Christ or am I abiding in the things of this world? And if you're not, then you need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. You need to be united to the true vine who will give you strength and supply to fight your sin and put it to death. But we also see the call to exhort one another, right? To not just examine ourselves, but to exhort one another, to call one another to repentance. Hebrews chapter 3 says, exhort one another as long as it's called today, so that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That we are to call one another to abide in Christ, in His love and in His joy, saying things like, brother or sister, I saw you fall into a sin recently. How can I help you? How can I be there for you? Brother or sister, I saw you haven't attended worship recently. Are you okay? Can I help you? I've examined my own heart. I've prayed about this, but I believe you're in sin in this area. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? 
Or maybe even saying something like, your actions in public, what you've done online, has not been becoming of a Christian. It is not representing Christ well. Can I talk to you about this? These are all ways that we can call one another to repentance and walk with one another because the truth is we should all be willing and ready to receive correction and exhortation, right? Why? Because we're all sinners. <laughs> Let's admit that, right? We are all sinners. We all fail. We all mess up. And so we should be willing and ready to receive correction from our brothers and sisters in the faith because they should be doing it in love. They should be doing it out of a genuine care and concern for us. And it's actually part of our duty as members of Christ church to protect and uphold the gospel in this way and the implications of what Christ has done for us. And so we see the importance of abiding in Christ's church. But thirdly and finally, we see in this passage as we contemplate and think about what this means for us, we see the absolute necessity of being found in Christ, right? The absolute necessity of being found in Christ and that it is our only hope that apart from abiding in Him by true faith, we cannot have true joy, we cannot have forgiveness of our sins, and we cannot bear fruit. As Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we must abide in Christ this morning. And apart from our union with Him, we cannot experience the true joy and assurance of salvation and the profound rest that comes from Christ's love. Because I love what R.C. Sproul said about this passage. He says, we see four types of people in this passage. We see four types of people described in this passage. First, we see those who are abiding in Christ and who know it. Those who are abiding in Christ, who have been saved, and they have assurance of that salvation. They're trusting in the Lord. They're fighting their sin. They're bearing fruit. They're seeking to keep Christ's commandments. And the call for them this morning, if that describes you, is to keep abiding in Christ, right? Don't get complacent in your walk with the Lord. Continue to run the race and finish well. But we also see described in this passage those who are abiding in Christ, who are truly saved and don't know it. They don't have this assurance of salvation. They doubt that God could really save them. Maybe their consciences are weak. Maybe they're struggling in a particular season. And so the call for this group is to look to Christ, who is the true vine. Find your assurance, not in yourself, but in Him who will indeed work in you. We see a third group described, that there are those who are not abiding in Christ, who are unsaved and yet don't know it. They think they are saved, but they are not. They have what Scripture describes as false assurance. They are self-deceived. We read in Matthew chapter 7 that on the last day there will be many that come to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And the Lord will look to them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers 
of lawlessness, that there are many who think they are in the vine, but are not. There are many who think that their many great works will save them, but they actually have no true fruit. And so the call this morning for those who think they are in Christ, but are not, is to not trust in your own works. Don't trust in your own ability to bear fruit. Somehow coming to the Lord and saying, look what I did. That's what this group of people did. Look how great I am. Look what I did. Look what I can bring to the table. No, the call this morning is to look to Christ and His finished work. Coming to Him with the empty hands of faith, receiving Christ's perfect righteousness and resting upon Him alone. Because as we read in our confession this morning, anyone's ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. We cannot take credit for any of our good works, even the ones done in true faith. I love what Augustine said. He said, For if God the Father is glorified in this, that we bear much fruit and prove to be the disciples of Christ, let us not credit this to our own glory, as though we had this ability of ourselves. For such grace is from Him, and the glory in this is therefore not ours, but His. Right? Any believer's ability to do good works is not because we mustered up enough strength, but it is because of God's work in us. So we've seen those who are abiding in Christ and know it, those who are abiding in Christ and don't know it and doubt, those that are not abiding in Christ, but they think that they are. And thirdly and finally, we see those that are not abiding in Christ and know it. Those that have rejected Christ who have heard the gospel of grace and remain dead in their trespasses and sins. They've rejected the true vine. They've rejected salvation and forgiveness, and they remain in their sin. And so the call this morning for those that aren't abiding in Christ and have rejected him is to fall on your knees and cry out to God for mercy to call out to Him in prayer. And if the Lord is working on your heart saying, I know I'm a sinner. I've been convicted of my sin. I know that I'm a sinner, but I don't know what to pray. (laughs) I don't know what to ask. I don't know what to pray for. I know the Lord might be working in me this morning, but I don't know what to pray for. And we find in Luke 18... In the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, we see our Lord give us helpful words for the prayer of the one that is lost in their sin. Because we see that our prayer should not be like the Pharisees who stand far off and say, thank God that I am not like other men. Like extortioners or the unjust or the adulterers or even like this tax collector looking to his own work, saying, I fast twice twice a week and I tithe of all that I get. The Pharisees look to their own righteousness and they look and compare themselves to others. But we see in this parable of the tax collector that he is convicted over his sin and he can't even go near. It says that he stands far off 
and that he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest. And he says these seven simple words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That even though we are weak, even though our sin is great, God will indeed hear the prayer of his people. And as we seek to abide in him this morning, and as we seek to be found in him, he will hear us when we pray. And we have the great promise of that this morning, that as one commentator said, even though our prayers may be weak, stammering, and poor in our eyes, but if they come from a right heart, a heart abiding in Christ in his word, God understands them, and such prayers are his delight. May we be found in Christ this morning. May we seek to abide in him, in his word, as we pray according to his will, as we abide in his love, as we seek to keep his commandments, and as we abide in his joy and in our salvation that cannot be taken away. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in Christ and in union with him, we have the promise of everything we need. Forgiveness of our sins and trespasses, salvation by the work of Christ alone, and a perfect righteousness that's only found by faith. But we're also shown in your word that the gospel not only has these great indicatives, but these great imperatives that you work in us. These great promises that you will not leave us in our sin, but you will change and conform us into the image of your son as we are abiding in him, in his joy and in his love. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that wherever we're at, Whichever one of those four categories describes us this morning, Lord, we pray that we would look to Christ, that we would find ourselves in Him this morning, that we would look to Him, the true vine, and that we would abide in Him and abide in His great and eternal love. Lord, we need Your help this morning, and we pray that You would strengthen us by Your Spirit to believe and trust these things and receive and rest upon Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.